So I'd like to welcome everybody to the um, episode of Building a World of Encounter, Not Confrontation. And we're going to talk today about some of those populations that we know the least about because we are privileged and benefit enough to not to have homes, to have places to live, to have people to help us out when um, economics get a little tough. And the population I'm talking about is the homeless. So I'm uh, based in Atlanta. I go back and forth between Atlanta and Hilton Head and other places, but um, I have the most experience in Atlanta for the last 20 years. And so I was doing some research and um, some very recent data on homelessness really sort of startled me. Um, in, in 2019, uh, there's an organization called Partners for Home, and they did uh, a survey, and they found that there were 3,200 homeless people within the city of Atlanta's only 130 square mile footprint. And uh, Atlanta has just under 6 million people in population. Um, and, you know, the homelessness population in Atlanta, and we have other problems other than homelessness, but for now, let's talk about homelessness. Um, it's, it's kind of had its ups and downs. You know, the good news is that the count seems to be down by 25% since between 2015 and 2019, but it actually ticked up a little bit um, between 2018 and 2019. And so it's an interesting population um, that we have here because I think it's not a surprise that two out of three of those homeless actually suffer from some type of mental illness or substance abuse probably leading to the fact that they are homeless. But I think people would be really surprised to know how many people are uh, military and, and veterans. And this stat actually shocked me that of those people who are of the homeless, 86% are African-American people of color. Um, and, I, and when I say people of color, I don't mean Asians or um, Native Americans or other types of Native folks. Um, it's Native African American, 86%. And you'd be shocked to see how many of these unaccompanied youth are also a part of this homelessness. Um, and that speaks a lot to the environments and the family lives that some of these people grow up with. Um, we have those in emergency shelters, we have transitional shelters, and then we have a lot of people that are unsheltered. And a lot of those people are unaccompanied youth. That, again, shocks, I think would shock a lot of people. So today we're going to talk about what it's like to actually encounter a lot of this population uh, firsthand. And I know I um, did not have a lot of experience with it myself. I grew up in the big city of DC where I became really desensitized to the homeless population. And you walk by and people are always begging and asking for things and you just sort of have the blinders on. And um, I, I found an organization here in Atlanta that goes out when the temperature goes 30, 30 degrees or below called 3-0 we go, and we go out, they went out, and I accompanied them a couple of times to deliver gloves and hats and scarves and socks and uh, to the homeless, the various places where they typically hang out and, and tent out, so to speak. And I was amazed, and it was an eye-opening experience for me to see who was there, how they take care of each other, um, 
and so much about this population that we don't see and we don't know and um, you know, the mentally ill, but the care that they take for one another to say, oh, don't give that to me. Let me get Susie because I know she really needs that. And a young middle-aged couple, um, veteran couple who had just found themselves homeless and were tenting out in one of these areas and were so grateful for the help. And it's just so much you don't see, so much you don't know and don't understand about this population. So that's why I wanted to invite um, Drew Benton um, is our guest today. And he runs and created a, a company called Project Live Love, uh, of which 3O We Go, the, the thing I participated in, is a component of, where their intent is to influence the hearts and minds of individuals with the idea of living love and bringing that message into the culture through the networks, through our actions, um, and through a lot of different projects. Um, you know, Drew himself is a very interesting character. Um, he has been, he volunteered at an organization called Safe House Outreach. He spent most of his life in outreach and in ministry. And I think that's extraordinarily ad admirable. <clears throat> um, so he uh, spent since early 2000s working at uh, volunteering at Safe House, serving and loving the homeless men and women of Atlanta. Thank you, Drew. Um, and his, since then he has grown. Um, to create this organization, activating over 8,000 individuals to show their love to others, affecting the lives of over 25,000 people in need. And uh, I think it's just a beautiful thing that, um, Drew, that you're doing. So now I'd like to introduce Drew, Drew Benton. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to this, and what you were trying to achieve? Sure, absolutely, Don. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for letting me share a little bit of thought around this subject. Uh, so, my journey is—I'll uh, try and give you the very quick version of it—is I grew up in a very traditional uh, ministry home. My dad was a pastor. Um, I actually answered a call to ministry as well, and was a pastor, student pastor for a period of time, um, and basically kind of got to a place in my personal life and also my spiritual journey that um, that the way I was approaching my faith was not going to be the way I would continue to approach my faith for the future. Uh, meaning that I looked at the life of Jesus Christ and see a man who was in fact homeless himself, uh, who went from town to town and lived at the mercy of strangers. Um, and at the time for me, I was in a uh, church environment where uh, we literally went around the world in private airplanes, wore tailor-made suits, ate in five-star restaurants, uh, and something about that didn't seem to match up to um, the Jesus of the Bible. And so I, I just took a big step back from that traditional ministry role. Um, and so w when I did that, um, I had at the time I had a. I, have a wife and at that time had a, one of my two daughters uh, that I currently, so now I have two. Um, so I had a, a family and I basically stepped away from my entire career path. Um, I, at that particular time, I was mentoring under a pastor of a very large church. Um, and basically the idea would be is uh, on upon completion of that mentorship that I would essentially be launched out as a pastor to another church um, and probably in the convention, something like that. Um, 
and so basically, um, I stepped away from that career path, not really knowing what was next or what, what, where that was going to go. I just knew I couldn't keep doing ministry that way. That just wasn't the fit that, that had been applied to my life, the calling for my life. Um, so as a, as a need to make money, as a need to support my household, um, I was, I, I, my brother invited me to interview for a job for a production agency. Um, this agency did a lot of different live events and they said, Hey, if you'll come to this event and you'll run the spotlight, then we'll give you an interview after that. And if the interview goes well, we'll, we'll talk about hiring you on. Uh, so I said, okay, cool. I need to make money. So I went down to run a spotlight. Um, not, you know, nothing I've ever done before in my life, nothing like that. Um, so I came down and ran the spotlight and come to find out the event was the gala for Safe House Outreach. Um, and Safe House Outreach, that night I learned about a place that loved God and loved people in a very real way, um, very hands-on way, uh, where when people were hungry, they were giving out food. When people were thirsty, they were providing drink. When people were naked, they were clothing them. Um, and that, to me, resonated more with me in the direction of that my life would go from there. Um, and so essentially I then, or not a, immediately after that, that night I actually met the founder of Safe House, Philip Bray. Yeah, he invited me to come volunteer at Safe House. So I came and volunteered. And then um, after about a few months of that, that turned into, they hired me part-time. Then a few months after that, they hired me full-time. Uh, and then I served at Safe House for about three years and then left to start Project Live Love. Just a bit of, of just to put a, a, a little bit more to the story, eight months ago, I'm, I'm actually talking to you right now from Safe House Outreach. Uh, eight months ago, I came back on staff here in addition to uh, my responsibilities with Project Live Love, and I'm serving again here as the Urban Nation Director, which is oversees all of the volunteers and all of the different um, ways that we are involved in the community. Um, so it's kind of funny how some things go full circle. Uh, so that's a little bit of my journey. Um, you know, inside of that, I would say that um, I think that one of the most pivotal moments for my life that really pulled me into all this was the first night I showed up at Safe House Outreach. Um, I'm just a white guy from the suburbs. That's the way I grew up. And grew up middle class America, have no, had no real understanding of extreme poverty or homelessness or any of these things. And so I, I showed up on this parking lot at the invite of Philip Bray, the founder, and um, literally the way that we served meals at that time is people would come through a meal line, and then when they came out, they would come outside and sit down in chairs, and that's where they would have their meal. And I came on this parking lot, and there was 250 to 300 uh, people experiencing homelessness, chilling out there, and I, I literally, I say it all the time, and it's... I was on homeless man overload. Uh, I was just like, what's going on here? I'd never seen anything like this. You know, it just blew me away. And it, and it kind of was like one of those things where you're just like, you know, fish out of water, you know, it's just like, really, I don't know what to do. And uh, as I'm sort of clamoring, looking for a wall or a corner to, to climb into, um, I hear this voice say to me, young man, come over here and have a seat. Uh, this gentleman named Marlon Martin, uh, a black man from Alabama, recently been released from prison. Um, at that time, I was, uh, what was I, 20-something years old. Um, 
he was in his mid-50s, so we're lifetimes apart, we're worlds apart, the way we grew up is altogether different. Uh, but he has invites me to come over and sit down. I sit down next to Marlon. And through that conversation, I began to realize Marlon is a man. He's, no he's not very different than me. Um, and we began a friendship. And Marlon began to, what I always say is he humanized homelessness for me. Mm -hmm. he, he brought a face, a personality, and that was transformational in my life. Uh, to this day, Marlon and I are still friends, but I, I promise you, had I not have met him that night, I'm not sure I'd still be doing what I do. Uh, so that was definitely a catalyst between uh, bumping into Safe House and then coming onto this campus uh, that kind of drew me into this kind of work, trying to, to love God and love people. That's fantastic. You know, I had a, um, an experience, you mentioned your experience with this uh, gentleman, um, and, you know, I kind of had a similar experience. It was probably within the same six to 12 months that I uh, went uh, out with Rio We Go, where I was in Chicago and I um, was still in my mindset. So it must have happened before I went to 3O We Go. I think actually this experience is what prompted me to, um, when I heard about 3O We Go, because we have some mutual friends, that I said, I want to do this. My, uh, so I, I had a, a business where I traveled a lot and I had traveled to Chicago. It was a long day. It was the end of the day. I had gotten up early for the flight. I had rented a car to go out to see some clients and I was returning the rental car and walking back to my hotel in downtown Chicago. I was tired. I was hungry. I was cranky. It was, you know, six or seven o'clock at night and being from DC and having the experience of being around homeless all the time that you become desensitized to it. Um, you know, I was walking up uh, a street, you know, after returning the rental car and um, a, a I'm going to say probably in his mid thirties, um, black man with a young boy was at the corner asking people to spare some change, some money so that they could buy dinner for themselves for the evening. And I just walked right on past, you know, it was just a whatever. And, you know, God works in not so very mysterious ways sometimes because after a couple of blocks, I realized, oh crap, I'm going in the wrong direction. I got to turn around and go back. And so wouldn't you know it, the light changed right at that corner and I had to stop and stay there at that corner with them. And so the man, again, reiterated his request to have some help buying dinner for the evening for him and his son. And I, in my irritated, desensitized, DC mode mentality city girl, you know, just looked over him and said, you know, I'm not going to give you money, but if you really want dinner, I'll buy you dinner. And much to my surprise, he said, okay, that would be great. And I said, okay, well, right here we have a Chinese restaurant, down there we have a McDonald's, where would you like to go? Or do you have another place? He said, let's go to McDonald's. So that gave us a good three blocks to tell, to talk. Mm -hmm. And I could hear his story. And, you know, there are lots of issues that get embroiled in this and, and my experience here, but the long and the short of it is I walked three blocks with this person while he told me the heartbreaking story of growing up in a disadvantaged neighborhood with disadvantaged environments where he felt the only option for him to make money was to sell drugs. He claims he wasn't a user, who knows if he was or not, doesn't matter. He was 
all clean and sober and you know together then he gets out of prison gets his son back and he's trying to get a job and, and lead a clean life and he's homeless uh, and he tried to find a job and he got a job as a doorman for a hotel group downtown in Chicago and when his record came back, it showed the felony and they said, sorry, we're, you're a great employee for the you know, short period of time we've had you, but we can't risk having somebody with a felony out you know, representing us at the door. So he lost his job. So he goes down to Chicago every single day from the shelter that's outside of you know, the city and puts his kid in school and then spends the rest of the day trying to find a job so that they can no longer be homeless. And, you know, it just really called to me the difficulty that people get into that becomes such a cycle and such a difficult cycle to break out of if you don't have something seriously supporting you and really helping you. You know, after I bought them dinner at McDonald's, I offered to buy them, you know, more food. They said, no, we don't have any place to keep it. So it doesn't do us any good. Can I buy something for your, your boy? Does he need new shoes? He's a growing kid of eight years old, new clothes, new shoes, whatever. He said, no, you know, actually I was just able to get him some things. So, you know, he didn't take anything more than what he absolutely needed in that moment. And it really humanized not only the homelessness population, but a lot of those who have come out of um, jail or other environments where they're trying to make themselves a better life but just simply don't have the support mechanisms and have so much working against them and you know so what you're doing with your organization tell us a little bit more about how you are trying to help these people who oftentimes find themselves in this continual cycle that's hard to break out of sure um so here, here at Safe House, I'll kind of go, I'll go through that first, and then I'll talk about maybe some of the additional things we're doing through Project Live Love as well. Uh, as we kind of take a, a multi-tiered approach. Um, so the sort of bottom rung of the ladder, if you will, or if you, uh, we, we actually put it into a visual image of, of a triangle, and then you have like various layers of that triangle. So a pyramid, if you will. We like to call it the pyramid of self-sufficiency. Um, the sort of bottom layer of that, and we used to do a funnel, but who wants to go down the drain? <laughs> so now it's a pyramid. Uh, so <laughs> I like that. Visuals yeah. are important. <laughs> yeah, it's it like, well, let's flip this around. This, this is, seems better, you know? Um, so the bottom layer is what we call our impact meals. Um, this is where we meet that basic, basic need of food. Um, everybody's hungry. We're all human. We all eat. We are, you know, that's just a, a natural piece of who we are. Um, and so the folks that we serve, they come in the door. Um, well, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, in a little bit as far as how COVID-19 has affected everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but the people we serve, we, uh, we serve a meal, and it's our opportunity to get to know them, learn their names, learn their stories, and find out how we can really help. Um, it's a relationship. It doesn't, you know, homelessness is not a uh, one-size-fits-all solution. So it's, a, it's definitely a high relational, um, to help people, you have to really, really establish that relationship from the get-go. Um, and it's only through doing that. So for example, we'll have people that have come here for months. Uh, we've had people that come here for years that have never taken advantage of the additional services we provide because they haven't really connected with somebody on a staff or volunteer basis. 
Um, and that relationship's paramount. It really is. It's amazing how we'll have people come here for years and then all of a sudden they connect really well with somebody and boom, they're able to get through um, self-sufficiency. Um, so kind of the next step is what we call problem solvers. Um, so on top of your, on top of the, the meals, you have problem solvers. And through problem solvers, we can do a whole variety of different things to help people. Um, these are meeting all kinds of basic needs. Everything from maybe you need to get a hygiene kit so you can brush your teeth or put on some deodorant. Uh, maybe you want to get uh, your birth certificate or your social security card. Um, if you think about it, if you're living on the streets, everything you own is on your person or it's in your bag or your purse. You know, if you're a lady or, I mean, or, or you're in a, and maybe in a wallet kind of thing. Um, so what happens all too often is people are robbed. Uh, people are, are, are mugged and all of their stuff gets stolen. So, you know, a lot of times we look at people on the streets and we think, well, they just need to go get a job. You know, that guy's lazy. He, he just needs to go work. Well, think about it. If you, what's the first thing they ask you for whenever you get a job, they ask you for two forms of identification. So and an address. <laughs> and an address. Absolutely, yeah. So if you don't have an ID and you don't have a birth certificate or a social security card, then you are you're unemployable. Mm -hmm. And so we help people navigate through those pieces, help them get to where they can become job ready. Um, so it, there's a whole lot more things to what happens in problem solvers. Everything from people using the telephone connecting folks to rehabs to um, we send people home on, bu on bus tickets all the time. Um, so people that have come to Atlanta, maybe you came to stay with your boyfriend and um, you were staying at his house and maybe uh, things didn't work out. And next thing you know, you found yourself out on the streets. Um, you can come to safe house and we, we, we send people home left and right. We've been doing a lot of that here recently, uh, which has been very exciting. So that's kind of the, the stair step number two. It, also in tandem with that stair step is a thing we have called Atlanta Guardian. And Atlanta Guardian is essentially problem solvers, but away from Safe House. Uh, they go out at night from about 11 o'clock until uh, sometime early off in the morning and try and find people that are living in their cars, people that are living under bridgeways, people that are, are uh, what we call um, provider resistant. So they're not coming into Safe House. They won't come to Safe House for whatever their reasoning. Uh, maybe they don't want to be a part of the crowds. They maybe feel intimidated. So we're going to them. Um, the, the next stair step is our career development program. Um, and it's through this program that we're now really, really starting to move people up the, up the rungs, up the ladder. So they've already got their ID. They're employable. As soon as they come into a career development program, we have housing that we connect them into. So they go straight into housing. Uh, so they have a place where they can shower in the morning, they can prepare their breakfast, get, you know, pack their lunch to go to work. And then we help them through a series of job readiness trainings. Uh, we have various workshops that we put them through. They come in and they, and then they work at Safe House three days a week, uh, doing various tasks, different projects. Uh, some of them are campus beautification. Some of it, frankly, it's janitorial work. Um, so pieces of it are. But it gives us an opportunity to observe them firsthand to see how they work. And then our career development director is able to then speak with um, having observed how they work. She can then serve as a reference to connecting them into jobs. Uh, and additionally, she goes on, she does go out and proactively 
gets job listings that she, through various partners of Safe House, that we're able to connect people on into. Uh, so that's kind of what that looks like. And essentially, once you graduate the career development program, we'll help you navigate. Once you get your, we help you, we, we teach them budgeting, how to deal with their finances. And so once they, once they graduate, then we help them move from there into permanent housing. So out of temporary housing, off into permanent housing. And at that point, people are really, really, really on the path to self-sufficiency. Uh, do some of them fall down? Yes. And do we help them get back up? Yes. Um, so some of that, there's a little bit, like I said, it's all relationships. It's very, it's not, not that there's no one size fits all. Um, in addition to all of those things, I, I'll just quickly speak as well about Project Live Love is through that organization, we, we focus on two things. One, during the winter months that we do our three oh we go program, uh, which is where we see it as a, as a homeless rescue program. So where we come out and try to meet people at a point of a critical need. Um, having done that program over the years, there have been, I think it's like 72 different for instances of where if we wouldn't have shown up, these people might not have made it through the night. And that's no joke. Um, there was one guy in particular that uh, when he showed up, he had urinated on himself. You could tell he was, he was out of his mind. Um, it was like 17 degrees outside and I'm telling you why he had, he had on a t-shirt and a pair of pants that again, he had urinated on. So I'm sure that was freezing on his body. Um, and so we were able to wrap him up in blankets, uh, get a, put a hat on him. One of our volunteers took her jacket off and put her jacket on the man. Uh, we put some gloves on him and was able to help him, uh, give him some warmth and safety for the night. Uh, and then lastly is about, about, um, project live love is we also have, we do various health day events throughout the year. Um, so where we do, we block the street downtown Atlanta, bring in a lot of different doctors, service providers. We do STD testing. Uh, we bring in chiropractors. Everybody gets a hygiene kit. Um, it's a whole bunch of different things that we do to try and help people from a health perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, that sounds wonderful. And, you know, a couple of things that you said that really stuck out in my head is, you know, especially when we talk about the misconceptions that people have about the homeless, you know, just go get a job. Um, or that they're criminals um, and or that they're lazy and one of the things that you mentioned that I hadn't even thought about is with respect to crime is that not only are they not always the criminals they are the victims of crime and so because they don't have an ability to protect themselves or their um, their their stuff especially if um, you know they're not a big tall strong muscular man, um, you know, that they can be stolen from money, IDs, all of that kind of stuff. And like you pointed out, if you don't have an ID, you are totally messed with um, in terms of trying to get a job or anything like that. And, you know, cost money to get those things replaced. And it becomes a vicious cycle. If you don't have an ID to get a job to get money, you can't get the money to get the ID, you know, I mean, chicken and egg. And, um, and I think that's a great misconception to clear up for a lot of people that the homelessness are not the ones creating a lot of the crime. They are the victims of crime. Um, and, you know, another thing, too, is um, I thought about is the high mental illness um, component of those people that are in homeless. If they don't have the money for stabilizing medications, then again, that 
begins that that cycle and i have a good friend whose mother was in that that grouping where you know we talk a lot about mental illness in a lot of areas you know whether it's gun control or homelessness or whatever and her her mom was in one of these in between stage of, of folks. They weren't so severe that they need to be institutionalized, but they had enough problems that they needed regular medication to function well. And so they needed somebody to either provide them that medication, make sure they were taking that medication and needed to live in like these kind of in between supervised uh, environments like group homes, which have not been regulated and are all over the place um, in terms of their quality and simply are not that many of them available either. So there is such a cycle of so hard to break out of that once you get into it. Um, and you know, you brought up another thing too, is you know, a lot of times cities will pass laws against panhandling and homelessness and where you can um, congregate or camp out. And in in what I think underlies that is sort of a shame that the city has of the homeless, but yet you mentioned that the homelessness, them, the homeless themselves often feel shame about coming and getting help as well. And so one of the things that we wanna do is remove that label of shame and, and of judgment um, and of these preconceived notions. Um, you know, I'd like to hear more about how your own preconceived notions and how others that you have seen have preconceived notions, how those were disabused um, once you started creating these personal relationships. Because I, I love the fact that you are focusing on that because it is, not only a relationship that builds trust, but it's a humanizing, you see them as individuals, not just as this vacant, void, homeless entity that you don't you know, put any heart into. Sure, um, and, then, and then I'll answer that question, and then I also wanna to touch on uh, the labeling thing as well, just uh, in a minute. Yeah, uh, great. So the, um, I guess, you know, when you grow up in the suburban environment, um, the only, for me, the only real context for homelessness was the, what you see on television or in a movie, uh, which is almost always, you know, it's usually a white man with a big beard and, you know, a sock hat on and a shopping cart and the whole shebang, you know, and it's full of all kinds of bags of stuff and all that. And maybe, maybe it's a white lady, you know, I think about Home Alone too, you know, and it's funny how we, you know, those are the images that I grew up with. These are the people that I thought of when I thought of people living on the streets. Um, and so that definitely, that, that wall crumbled the night I met Marlon. Um, I mean, it really did. It was one of those things where it, for me, it didn't take, 10 years or, or a year of working with people to have these walls fall, it fell fast because it just, I had an aha moment, if you will. It was a very catalytic aha moment. And it was and, in your face too. I mean, you didn't have any choice. <laughs> right, I met somebody dealing with this, you know, which is totally different than what you see on a TV screen. Um, it was a or dr driving by or walking by where you don't have to pay any attention to them. That's correct. Uh-huh. Cause the only other context I had for seeing people um, on the streets was going to the Braves games and similar to your experience that you had whenever you were walking past that group or the, past that gentleman asking for money in Chicago 
that's what we did. It was like, uh oh, hey, there's people asking for money. Walk faster, you know, or let's cross the street. Let's go to the other side, you know, because we just didn't know any better. That's just the way we grew up. Um, and we didn't take the time to say, hey, man, what's your name? What's your story? Now let me see if I can help you. Um, we just, you know, we were eager to get to the Braves game and or get home at the end of the night, whatever that looked like. So those are those are my only real context for for experiencing people uh, living on the streets. So, like I say, all that sort of crumbled the night I met Marlon, and has continued to fall down ever since. You know, I've, as at this point now, I've been doing this work for um, almost fifteen years, and so every story, every person you meet kind of opens up a new piece of understanding that you didn't have previously. Um, and that's why I always say that homelessness is as various as the colors of the rainbow because that, that it is. There's no, there's no one story, and I've, I've already said that earlier. Um, talking about the labels piece for a second is one thing that we're trying to do at Safe House is we're trying to eradicate the term homeless. And what I mean by that, and in our conversation, we both have probably said it 50 times, and that's, and that's the way it is. But what we're trying to move to is we're trying to move the culture to a place of saying people experiencing homelessness or homelessness um, instead of applying the label of homeless to an individual. Mm, I love that. From the standpoint, because if it gets in their head that they are homeless, that does something to your psyche. It changes your perspective of living. Yep. You being a person living in homelessness is different than being a homeless person. Or um, having homeless as your identity. I, you are so right on that front. I'm, that's exactly right. So really. we're trying to move away from letting, we're trying not to let people take on that identity. That's, that's exactly right. Beautiful. Uh, and so, and, and that permeates into how we as the staff, the volunteers, how we all, from a language perspective, how we say things. Um, and so, that labeling piece is definitely something we are trying to, to move away from. So the terms we use are things like homelessness, uh, living, people living on the streets. Uh, we've kind of come up with some different you know, substitutes from using homeless, although that word is, it is it's, uh, prolific throughout our culture. It's gonna be a really hard time to get rid of that. Uh, but you're starting to see that apply to other areas of our culture as well. So for example, uh, people are starting to say uh, people dealing with bulimia or people dealing with um, depression or versus versus saying a bulimic, yes. you know, um, because it, it, it just it reframes the, the, the term to where it's not something that somebody's going to wear around. It's something yeah. that they're dealing with as a thing. Uh, like an alcoholic versus someone who's in, uh, dealing with alcoholism. I you know, love that. Just a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, I teach ego classes and um, about how to manage your ego and uh, identifying with emotions. Um, you know, I am angry. No, you are experiencing the emotional energy of anger running through you so that you don't become identified with it and become an angry person. So I am. Um, I, I couldn't be more on your side with this. I think that that is absolutely a, an element of our psyche that I think is just critical. And I'm just thrilled jumping up and down in my own head right now that you guys are, are taking that approach. 
Yeah, it's um, it's funny. It'll take time. I mean, even here at Safe House, it takes time for our staff, our volunteers, to. And it's funny because we'll catch ourselves. We'll be like, "Hey, I was talking to this homeless this. I mean, this guy experiencing homelessness the other day. You know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. so it it'll take time. You know, for us to yeah. to make that cultural shift. But that's something Switch we're trying. To, uh, yeah, beautiful. Um. So I, I want to ask you now, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times your upbringing being so far removed from, from this. And I think that obviously part of the psyche that we're talking about here and how people view um, people suffering from homelessness situations mm -hmm. um, are it's because it is so easy and it's so much less, it's so much more comfortable, less uncomfortable to use these labels, to turn a blind eye, to go deaf, dumb, and blind to the circumstances, um, because that's, it's just easier and it feels better. Um, it's not as uncomfortable. And so given your circumstances and growing up, and I didn't grow up all that differently than you, um, is how has your family and those closest to you responded? to your path and to what you're doing since it has taken quite a different turn. Yes. Um, so at first, being that I was, I'm a pastor's kid, <laughs> when I stepped away from the traditional ministry, um, that was met with a little bit of like, you know, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> then when that rolled into, well, what I am going to do is I'm going to work in downtown Atlanta with people on the streets. Um, initially there was a little bit of like a what, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I will say this though, is that then that turned a curve though, pretty quick. Um, and when I, when I say the, the what, um, that was met from my, I would say my parents and maybe my, my siblings. Um, whereas my wife was a hundred percent on board from the beginning. Um, you know, she's always been very supportive of me and my passions and, uh, clearly this had become a passion of mine. So she was ready to go with me down that, that road as well as my daughters. They've always embraced this work very much. So, um, and they still like both of them, I have an 18 year old and a 14 year old and, um, they both come and serve with us here at safe house from time to time. And they love doing this kind of work. Um, my parents, I, it was only maybe, I don't know, six months, eight months into doing to working at safe house and, by Christmas of that year, they were down here in the midst of it all as well. Um, and so my, my family, my parents, my in-laws have fully embraced what we do. Uh, my dad comes to all of our events, comes to as many things as he can. He comes to three we go all the time. Um, and so he does whatever he can do to be involved. And it's really neat to see how in his life, again, coming from traditional ministry, uh, which is preaching, teaching, you know, from up here on the pulpit um, to the transition of sitting beside somebody playing a game of checkers or, you know, just having lunch together and having a conversation, how that, that shift has happened in him. It's really, it, I think it's awesome to watch. I love just sitting back watching my dad at some of these events. It's, it's kind of the cutest thing sometimes, <laughs> uh, but he, he, he's, it, it's changed all of us though, you know, like, I mean, his perspective has changed through the years. So. That's wonderful. Um, you know, I'd like to um, kind of the last couple of things I want to talk about is um, 
you know, any circumstances that, you know, or, or scenario, like an example, that you can think of, um, you know, you've named a couple for yourself and, and for your dad, but, um, you know, in this regard of how challenging is it to educate people um, and to um, encounter uh, um, differing views or, or the deaf, dumb, and blind perspective about um, those who are suffering from homelessness right now. H how do you approach them? And are there examples that you, can, that you can give as to how somebody had a preconceived notion that once you were able to get through with them or they had an experience directly with somebody that you saw that change and it completely changed their perspective of what they came into it with through that encounter. So, yeah. Um, so from, I think, I think a good example of that would be is uh, from time to time I'm invited to go speak at different, uh, whether it be companies, schools, churches, whatever these things are, clubs, um, podcasts, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, podcasts, business networking groups, whatever they are, whatever it is, you know, and I, so when people invite me into those environments, um, like, for example, really, like, if I go to a school or a church, somewhere where they have a big screen, I'll walk people through imagery, um, I'll take them through various pictures of how people live in homelessness, because what we see in Atlanta, as and you know, where you started the podcast with the uh, with the statistics, what we see here in Atlanta is not what you see in Hickory, North Carolina. It's not what you see in Las Vegas, Nevada. It it is similar to what you would see in New York City, or even possibly a little bit similar to what you might see in L.A. or Chicago. But there are other pockets and facets of our society that it looks altogether very different. Um, I I've done work in. Las Vegas, and I've done work in Hickory, North Carolina, and when I show these pictures of the ones in Hickory in particular, it's all white people, uh, and for the most part, they're veterans, um, and they're living in tents in the woods, which is different than the urban environment you see here, where people are under bridgeways and, um, you know, in what we call cat holes, where they're like, uh, maybe they're under an awning way or something like that. Um, so all that to say this is that whenever I begin to share these pictures, I always begin my, 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 my speeches, my talks, by asking a series of questions, which are, the first thing I say is, what do homeless people look like? Mm. And then you get all that feedback. Oh, they're, they're dirty, they, you know, they've got a big beard, they push a cart, you know, all those cliche things. Occasionally you'll get one, and this always happens with the kids, the kids will do this all the time. They look like us. And they're right. You're like, you're right, little kid. That's exactly right. Is you couldn't pick them out of a lineup if you tried. I mean, the thing of it is, is yes. Do you have these people that are cliche? Yes. But most of the people that we work with, you wouldn't know who they were. You would think they're out here on the street. You might think that's a Georgia State student or, you know, because they have on a backpack or it could be somebody experiencing homelessness. You don't know. Um, and so you begin to see those light bulbs come on. And, and I walk them through a lot more than that. I ask them, you know, how old are, are people experiencing homelessness? Um, ironically, in the state of Georgia, the largest category of people in homelessness is under the age of 18, children. Wow. Um, so you don't, you don't really realize that because you don't see that on the streets. Most of those people are in shelter systems or they're with mom and dad. You know, they're, they're, it's different. It, you just don't see that as often. 
do we see children come through safe house all the time uh, but it's not as much as you see adults coming through um, so i walk people through a lot of those preconceived notions those questions that um, my questions are designed to bring out the cliches to bring out the um, preconceived notions that we all have and then I'm able to walk people through hey this is the reality mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's a lot of like aha moments that happen in that the biggest aha moments that happen are when people come to safe house uh, when you see it firsthand like similar to what happened to me similar to what happened to you in Chicago whenever you have that encounter with an individual and they make it real then you really see a lot of breakthroughs happen uh, which is I that's what turns me on about what I do. That's my most exciting thing. That's why I started Project Live Love, was to lead more people into having these aha moments of a collision with a person that they would have never, ever naturally gone out to connect with. Yeah. Uh, and watching those transformations occur as a result of that experience. Yeah, the 3.0 we go was um, definitely an eye-opener because it wasn't just an individual. You know, you spent two hours driving around, interacting with many people, and you see all different sorts of circumstances that um, people have found themselves out on the street for one reason or another. And when you see them trying to stay warm in between cardboard boxes and, um, you know, just things that just literally break your heart when you are right there looking at it and the warmth and community that is really part of the people in that circumstance where I was just so moved that even though there you could tell that, that there was some mental challenges um, in terms of you know whatever diagnosis they might have, there was still coming through that the incredible strong human piece of them that says, you know what? I know Susie really needs these socks. Let come over here, follow me, please. And I know she's over here. And, you know, that's just, you know, it, it's, it's gotta have a tug on your heart to where you've gotta stop the deaf, dumb and blind, turning a blind eye to it just because that's easier to continue to perpetuate that view because it makes you feel more comfortable. Um, so now as we're winding down, um, I would love to share with our listeners and our viewers on YouTube, how can people become more involved? How can people start taking that action of encountering people, of changing the labels and changing the stereotypes and learning and, and truly hearing and seeing what is the circumstance and the people behind this and how can they volunteer, give money, whatever, you know, different people are going to want to do different things. How do people, what do you want to leave with people and how to com communicate with you and contact you and get involved? Absolutely. You know, depending on if people are local to Atlanta or not, um, I'll kind of walk through two different pieces, you know, universally, globally, anybody can do this here is take, do take one step towards changing your perspective. Um, go meet one person or just take one step closer to seeing how you can help solve the problem. Um, that's, that's, anybody can do that from anywhere. Um, 
locally here in Atlanta, if you want to connect with the work that we're doing, you can go to projectlivelove.com. Um, you can learn from there about how you can get connected to 3 Go. Whenever you land on the website, you'll see right up here, it says programs, click that, select 3 Go. Uh, from there, you can sign up to receive our alarms. That'll let you know what nights we're going. You can get a text message on your phone. The first 21 people that respond come out with us on those nights that go below freezing. Um, that's a great way to get involved. And again, that's a, that's one step. You may just come out and hand out some blankets, keep people warm for the night, just to, just to see it firsthand. That's a, a good first step. Um, another, another thing you can do is go to safehouseoutreach.org. Uh, and it, that's another uh, place you can connect with the work that's happening here in the city. Uh, from Safe House's website, you, I would say you can make a donation to help support the work that we're doing. Um, I would say of the two, please donate to Safe House. Um, Project Live Love is fortunate that we have a good, uh, several different sources of funding, so we're able to, we're, we're in good shape there. Not saying Safe House is hurting. Uh, point being is, is that I want to support the work here because I'd be honest with you, just in my career path, I think that I'm probably going to invest the next uh, 20 plus years of my life here at Safe House. Um, so I would like to see people help support that work um, at this time. So uh, additionally from that website, you can find out more about how you can volunteer with us. Currently, that looks like you come to an orientation, there's an application process, and then we will show you all the different ways you can plug in and you can start plugging in. Um, very soon we'll have a software online where you can go through all those things yourself. There's will be a, a, an online orientation and then you, from there you'll be able to select the different volunteer opportunities. Um, so those are both two great locations to connect with. Uh, if you ever want to reach out to me directly, uh, my name is Drew, D-R-E-W, and you can just do Drew at safehouseoutreach.org or Drew at projectlivelove.com, either one, they all come to me. Um, and I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a group that wants to get involved, maybe you represent um, a church group, a business, a club, a school, and you want to come and serve alongside of us, we have group opportunities. We have individual opportunities. We'd love for you to plug in the work that we're doing. Fantastic. And, um, you know, with this um, podcast, I'll also be using this as a basis to write uh, an article in the blog that I'll also be posting in a lot of places. So I'll include those links uh, as well as in the video that we'll post on YouTube for this series. I'll also put the links down there for people to click on as well. And so, Drew, this was incredibly enlightening, and I love what you guys are doing. It is incredibly important, and you are, and your organizations are fantastic examples of how to build a world of encounter, not confrontation, and um, dropping the labels and seeing the people and the huma, humans behind all of those thems that we think we see out there. So thank you so much for joining us and for enlightening us. Absolutely, Don. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, stay tuned for our subsequent um, episodes for Building a World of Encounter, Not Confrontation. And we'll soon be hearing from a founder of a group that um, helps to recruit and support those leaving hate groups, um, you know, with life after hate. So I hope you'll join us for that. And uh, thank you for joining us here with Drew and his organizations on those suffering from homelessness situations, which hopefully are temporary. Thanks, everybody.